I do pastor a church, one of the pastors at Commonwealth City Church right down the road. We meet on the campus of the University of Kentucky uh, at the Baptist Campus Ministries building right on Columbia Avenue. But for me, this is an extremely short commute today because I live on Carlisle Avenue one block down um, right there behind Castlewood Park. So I was like, man, this is great. It's like I could walk to church. I didn't because walking doesn't have air conditioning. Uh, drove to church. Actually, I have to go to Commonwealth right after this service, not preaching there, not pulling double duty, but um, I am going to go be with, be with my faith family this morning as well. And so honored to be with you guys today, honored to be in this psalm, just an psalm, and just uh, praying through and thinking through was led to this one here uh, in Psalm 93, and we just want to hop right in. It says, the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty, the Lord is robed, he has put on strength as his... Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved, his throne is established from of old, you are from everlasting. So Psalm verses 1 and 2, we have a, a, a real like, whole, just holistic kind of view at history. Now, what's interesting about the Psalms, and Justin mentioned this earlier, is that the, the whole book of the Psalms is a reminder to me that our emotions are as important as our theology. Psalms are not full of great theology of the whole. Now, there's a lot of places that it's really good, but there's also places where David like wants to, you know, smash children with rocks, you know, and it's like that doesn't seem as theologically appropriate or theologically appropriate a response, but yet it's important that it's in there through these things. And, and I love the figurative language. I love the, the way that it's written into songs. In fact, the, the, the other pastor, at, one of the other pastors at Commonwealth is a guy named Kurt Vernon, and he says the book of Psalms is a reminder that God writes better songs. God writes better songs than we could write. And it's the entire book of the 150 Psalms. And, and we get to the beginning here of Psalm 93, and it talks about the Lord being robed. Now, to be clear, I don't think there's ever a the Lord is necessarily unrobed, okay? I don't know what that does to your theology. Like, we're not trying to get too weird with this, Okay. But it's like David is not saying anything necessarily new, or the psalmist is not saying anything necessarily new. He says that strength is as his... Now, I don't know about you, but I, you know, in, in like accordance with the, the law of our land and the governance of our country, I wear pants every day, right? I hope that most of you guys wear every day as well. And, um, but there are moments in my life, specifically uh, around tax season, because this is not my strong suit, I'm kind of intimidated by it, that I will get up some mornings and tell myself, got to put your big boy pants on today, right? Like, we even say that in our adulthood. It's not just something you say to a toddler. I'm like, okay, it's a a tough day, going to be tough conversations, going to be, for those of you that are accountants in the room that think I'm a wuss, that's fine, Uh, I'm okay with it, but it's like, hey, Got to kind of, you know, got to kind of gird it up today. Got to kind of get ready for adulting life today. I remember when I bought my first book about adulting at Barnes & Noble when I was like 25 years old, and I just laughed and threw it away, and I was like, yeah, I'm never going to do that. You know, <laughs> got to be an adult today. I kind of feel like David has this moment, recognizes that sometimes the Lord walks in a greater understanding of his own strength. Not the Lord's understanding, but David sees the Lord, or, or the psalmist, I'm sorry, the psalmist sees the Lord walking in a greater um, light of his strength. So God has his strength belt shelved some days and on some days. I don't think he has his robe hanging some days and wearing it some days, but I think there are days that when we live in life, in the world, that we have your awareness of everything about him being as majestic as it really is. Unfortunately, there's some days 
And we prayed this in our confession that we have a lack of awareness of his majesty, of his presence, and of his And I think the psalmist is saying this in Psalm 93 from a place of confidence, joy, and victory. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. He is put on strength as, as his belt. The world is established and never be moved. I believe that, that the psalmist is writing that from an acknowledgement of confidence and joy and excitement in the strength and power of God. But I would be lying to you if I said that I always acknowledge or even acknowledging the all-powerful, almighty God that way. That sometimes I find myself in a, in a posture that I'm having to convince myself that he's mighty. I'm having to convince myself that he's powerful. You know, growing up in church my entire life, I'm a preacher's kid. Um, I've probably missed Sunday morning worship, minus COVID, miss Sunday morning worship gatherings probably less than 10 times in my entire life. Like, it's really easy for me to, like, put on a legalist attitude about what it means to attend church and to do churchy things. Okay, I know preacher's kids are either, like, in jail or in ministry. Well, I went the ministry route, you know? Like, um, that's kind of the way it always works out. And uh, I kind of found myself even having, and Justin and, and some of these other guys he's talking about, Zach and Kurt, like, they work as great sounding boards for me because I know that I am a recovering compartmentalist, legalist, routinist, going through the motions, doing some things. And there are times that I can, with my mouth, the Lord is mighty, the Lord is powerful, the Lord is strong, but with my heart, I'm not convinced. Or there are times that maybe I'm in a season of celebration or success, and it's easy to recognize his provision, his might, and his majesty. But then there are seasons that I'm swallowed up in suffering and in pain and in worry and in anxiety. And I say almost sarcastically or cynically, I mean, you're mighty, right? Ooh, you're in charge. Is this happening? And I don't know where you land on that. Maybe you're like, why did we ask this guy to preach? You know, like, he seems to mock the Lord. Um, but I just want you to know that no matter where you find yourself saying these, there are some trying to call you out today. If this is you today, this is not me. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit. There are some Sundays that you say the responsive reading because it's on the screen, not because it's in your heart. But there are some Sundays that I've preached a sermon because it's on my iPad, because I'm convinced of it. So that's my confession. In fact, there's a group of guys, these Justin being some, that I will send a text message and say, like, after church, like, man, today was awful. I laid a complete egg. I'm a pastor. I don't, I shouldn't even be doing this. I shouldn't even be allowed to do that. You know, like, and, and I'll get talked back, get reassured, um, get reminded that his word doesn't go out and, and doesn't return void. I'll get reminded of these things. But, but what I'm trying to tell you today is no matter say the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty because you believe it or because you're supposed to, he can handle your posture. He can handle it. That his majestic might and power is actually not dependent on your posture at all, it's dependent on his. And we're going to unpack that through the rest of our psalm today. In verse 3 and 4, we see it, uh, there be kind of a shift in perspective. So the perspective of verses 1 and 2 is the psalmist is looking at the majestic might of God. But then Psalm 3 and 4, or verse 3 and 4, what happens? Floods, floods, and more floods. The floods have lifted up. The floods have lifted their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. You even see an intensification Floods are rising, they're getting louder and roaring. And I don't know if you know this about water in the Bible. I know when we think about water, sometimes within the context of faith or religion, we think about baptism, as we should. But also, when we talk about water through the scriptures, 
it's kind of a, uh, water is part of creation that's actually intended to be tumultuous. Like, in fact, in, we see in Genesis, we see Noah and the flood being God's cleansing of the earth. And, and it's always hard for me when I go to like, I don't know what the nursery looks like here, so go ahead and maybe say a disclaimer. But I'll, I'll go to church nurseries and there'll be like the mural of Noah's Ark on the wall. And I'm like, that's a terrifying story. You know, like I know the animals are cute and all, and we usually like draw them in cartoon ways and up the little ramp two by two. Um, but there's like lots of men, women, and children in those waters. Like it's a terrifying saga. You know, it's not, it's not happy. <laughs> and, and like it's difficult. And so Noah and this was one showcase of, the, of, of kind of the, the turmoil of water, the Red Sea struck fear in the hearts of the Israelites as they were leaving. And then ultimately, what did it end up doing? It ended up destroying the entire nation. Uh, the Jordan River, as Joshua was trying to cross it to go to Jericho, was, it was a moment of turmoil. When Jacob crossed the river in Genesis, uh, what did he do? He, he, as, as he was trying to get his family across, a messenger of the Lord, angel of the Lord came and wrestled with him. Uh, and then ultimately, we see in the cl- conclusion of the Old Testament, we see Jonah, and again, that story kind of ends happy. As much as it can end happy if you were swallowed by a sea creature, you know, like, but when Jonah goes over, when Jonah goes over the boat, he's going to die. Like, he, like the whale was actually rescued. It wasn't punishment. I don't know if you know that part of the story. He was going overboard in the middle of the ocean as a sacrifice to the Lord, sin. And he was going to die thrown into the water. And so, like, there's this turmoil around water um, that really kind of is a synonym or coincides with just the understanding generally put of suffering. And so you see Psalm 93, you see the psalmist go from recognizing God's might to recognizing the present suffering that they live in and that we live. And he goes from an upward view to a present reality. I know all this about God. He's mighty. He's clothed in majesty. He's clothed in He's, he's majesty, he wears his, his belt of strength, his world will not move, but look at the world around me, look at my reality around me, look at what's happening, look at the floods rising up, look at the suffering rising up, look at the lament rising up, and so the psalmist moves from an ethereal recognition of God's might to the reality of his present need, but something happens between verse 3 and 4. I don't know exactly what happens. I don't know all the events that transpired, but something happened between his awareness, the floods being raised up around him, maybe raised up to, to rising up to the point of concern or a point of that he might even lose his own life. In verse 4, it says this, but mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Something happened in his recognition of his present need to tie back in to God's strength and might. Now, this could just be a spirit-filled poetic of God's might, or this could be from evidence in his life. And I'm going to trust the latter. I titled this sermon to Justin that God is not impersonally mighty. He is personally mighty. He is personally present. He is personally accessible, and he is personally provisional. He doesn't just... He isn't just some God that has a history of might that includes everybody but you. I think sometimes when we think about the present needs that we have, suffering that we endure, the things that cause us to lament, we think that we're the exception to God's promise of nearness, 
his promise of provision, his promise of rescue, that that's true of everybody else. Somebody else gets the healing, somebody else gets the provision, somebody else gets the reward, somebody else, somebody else gets the shareable Facebook post, somebody else gets all that stuff, and I just get the end of the rope. I get what I'm doing. And then we start to pile on ourselves, right? Oh, I get it because I did this. I get it because I failed him. I did it because I did say the, recon- I did say the response or didn't mean it. Okay, then we start to think like, oh, I, I didn't mean it. So God, God's listening. He's mad at me. And now I've started this chasm between us and the, and the Father that loves us that's all based on uh, our undoing the work that he said we couldn't undo, right? Like that's kind of how it builds up and how it happens. So I don't know what happened in the psalmist's life here. But I know he went from recognizing the suffering around him to recognizing the might of his God. And I would tell us that we get the exact same vantage point. We can know God is mighty by reading the scriptures, or we can know God is mighty by seeing his might and his transforming power in our life personally. You can know he's mighty by history, or you can know he's mighty by the testimony that he's invited you into. You know, Romans 8, 16 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's um, that his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we can be called children of God. Now, I know 8, 16 is true because it's in the Bible, right? Like, we can just, we can go into authorship, we can go into validation and credibility, we can go into how church his, you know, Fathers, church fathers have used Romans 8 over the years. We can go back into manuscript stuff and we can say, oh, this is true. This is authoritative. But do you want to know another reason I know Romans 8, 16 is true? Because God's spirit has bared witness with my spirit. It's happened. It's happened. Now, do I have, had I had a burning bush moment? I had a burning bush moment. But I've had a moment driving down the road, listening to a song that's a, a Christian song or listening to the radio and like while I'm driving down the road, something in that song, some lyrics, something triggers a thought in me or, or, or like kind of in, intersects the spirit in me and Jesus knocks on my heart and says, that's true about you. That's true about you. And I get goosebumps and my hair stands up. And, and like I know that his spirit is bearing witness with my spirit in that moment, driving down the road, in my coming to a song, that I am his child. Or I know there's moments in my life where I've read a truth of scripture, I've experienced something in life and God in his sweetness has reminded me of who I am in Christ. He's not done it in some like, you know, weird, extra biblical way. He's done it in a way that coincides with all of Scripture. But Romans 8.16 is true because it's in the Bible, but it's also true because you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, we have a testimony that his spirit has given our spirit a high five and said, you're mine, right? And so it's the same thing that's happening in this psalm, I believe, is that there goes a shift of like this recognition ethereally to a visibility of God meeting the psalmist in their struggle, meeting the psalmist in their suffering, meeting the psalmist in their flood or in the flood. And verse five, our last verse kind of uh, just takes us the next step. It says, "Your decrees are very trustworthy." Now, I'm a big fan of the ESV. I use it primarily, use it all through seminary. Um, but sometimes I feel like they just use weird words. And as I studied this one, and I, again, these scholars are way smarter than me. They've forgotten more about Bible translation than I'll ever know. Um, but as I look through other translations, as I even looked at the Hebrew word here for decrees, it's literally just the word testimonies. In fact, the KJV, or the New King James Version, says the word testimonies. It doesn't say decrees. The NIV says statutes. But it's really the word, your testimony. So talking about the Lord, your testimony, or what is to be witnessed from you, 
because that's what the word testimony means in, in Scripture. What's to be witnessed from you? New Testament word for testimony is the word martyr. I don't know if you knew that or not, but it's where we get the concept of dying for one's faith. Um, your testimony are very trustworthy. And so this goes back to what I was saying, that we don't have an impersonal, mighty God. We have a very personal one. Your testimonies are trustworthy. You can trust what you witness to be true. And so a question that I always ask when I preach in the event, we preached, uh, we're preaching through Psalms this summer at Commonwealth, and a couple weeks ago I got, I got to be up. We kind of share our teaching load a little bit with, with a number of people. And I got to say, one of the things that I always ask myself about when I preach an Old Testament text is, where is Jesus? Now, I have to like scalpel Jesus out of the New Testament and shove him in the Old Testament. Okay, he's there. In fact, all of Scripture points to him. The entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, I believe it's D.A. Carson that said this, hinges on one weekend in Jerusalem, the entire Bible. And so we can find him in the Old Testament because all of Scripture points to him. How do I know that? Well, 2 Timothy 3, 15, it's the verse right before the verse a lot of us know, where all Scriptures God read, this 3, 16. 3, 15, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, You have been acquainted with the sacred writings all of your life, and they have made you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. Do you know what sacred writings Paul's talking about? He's not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Romans, or Philippians, or Galatians, or Ephesians. He's talking about the Old Testament, because those hadn't been written yet. He said, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings from old, and they have led you, made you wise to salvation in Christ. In Acts 17, in Acts 18, in Acts 26, um, there are multiple places where it says that Paul or Apollos were persuading in this teaching the prophets, teaching Moses, teaching the writings so that people would know the truth of Jesus. So he's there. He's in the Old Testament. And I think when we ask, in our, ask ourselves in Psalm 93, where do we find Christ? I think we find him in verse 5. Your testimonies are very trustworthy, for holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Where is Jesus in this? I believe that Jesus is in the concept of testimony or or, or, or what Psalm 93, the translators might say, is the word. The, the word of the Lord is very trustworthy. How do we know that the word of the God is, is, is trustworthy? Because the word put on flesh and dwelt among us. Right? Put on flesh and dwelt among us. Incarnation and Emmanuel is not a Christmas word. Emmanuel is not a Christmas word. It's an everyday word. God fully and presently with us. And so Jesus becomes this testimony that we can trust. Now the psalmist would have had only a hope in the coming Messiah, but now we read Psalm 93 through a lens that we have a new promise. I'm, we read earlier from Mark chapter 4, verses 30, 37 through 41. I want to read for you again. A storm arose, the waves are breaking onto the boat. Where do we find Jesus in that saga? He's asleep. The disciples go to him, they wake him up, they tell him that they think they're going to die. And you have to think that they were cynical and sarcastic. Like, why did we leave? Like, all these people, like, they wanted to hang out with us. You wanted to get in the boat. You know, we start going across the water. Now we're all going to die out here in the middle of the lake or middle of the sea. There had to be these questions of frustration or, or even this, con this cause of concern. of care about us? He's asleep. Are we supposed to go wake him up? They have to be freaking out, right? But the, Messiah's, or the, the disciples knew something about the Messiah that we're invited to know in Psalm 93, that in the midst of our biggest winds and waves, in the midst of our greatest turmoil and suffering, like we have an ever-present God that's with us, that desires to speak to our, the things that we face, the suffering that we endure, that desires to speak to it and to speak to the internal turmoil in our lives and say to it, peace, be still. Notice in, in Mark chapter 4 that he rebukes the wind and the waves. 
but he doesn't rebuke the disciples, even though they lacked faith. Did you ever notice that part? He rebukes the wind and the waves, but he doesn't get mad at them because they lack faith. He meets them in that. And so in the exact same way, I need you to hear this today. If you hear anything today, I need you to hear this. He will never rebuke you for running to him in a time of need either. Never. He'll never rebuke you. for. He will welcome you. And he will. I said last week at Father's Day at our church, a uh, quote from, since I am in the Presbyterian house, good Tim Keller quote today. I feel like I have to do that, meet my quota. Um, what kind of person would dare wake a king at 3 a.m. asking for a cup of water? A child would. A child would be the only person that would dare wake a king at 3 a.m. and ask for a cup of water. We have that exact same access to our Heavenly Father. We shouldn't be afraid to approach Him. He's not going to rebuke us. And so what does that produce in our story or in the story of the disciples that were on the boat? They, they were once fearful, but now they had an understanding and they had borne witness to what the Lord had done for them. He spoke to the wind waves and He silenced it. And so if we were to look back at verse 5, His testimony is trustworthy. What testimony do we have of the ever-present voice of our God speaking to the winds and the waves and the floods and the waters around us, speaking to it and calling it to obey to Him. In Colossians 1, 16 and 17, which we read earlier as well, it talks about God being involved in all this creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, and all things were created through Him, and this is a fun, fun phrase. And for him, all things. He is before all in him, all things will hold together. He is in everything. We see this in the, in the Colossians passage. We see this in Psalm 93. He is in everything. His world is established. It will never be moved. All things are created both through him and for him. Do you know what that means? That even were created for him. Even floods were created for him. Even winds and waves were created for him. And they were created for him so that we could become witnesses, so that we could become testifiers to watching him even the scariest winds and waves and floods into order. So how did Christ do that most powerfully? Is his most powerful example of calling the winds and waves of the turmoil of creation to order boat with his disciples going across the sea? No. The most powerful way that he did that was he surrendered and submitted himself to suffering and to abuse and to torture and to a cross. And he called all creation sinfulness to order with his sacrifice on the cross. In Genesis, God flooded the, ocean, the world because of sin, but yet again the earth was sinful, right? His promise in the Old Testament was that of a rainbow, that he wouldn't flood it again. But I'm here to tell you that there's a better biblical promise than a rainbow. There's a better biblical promise than a spectrum of light that occurs through water droplets reflecting and refracting. There's a better promise. And that promise is not just that he won't flood the earth again, but that's a promise of the Lord's salvation found not in a light spectrum, but found in an empty tube and an empty cross. That's the better promise that we have. And so when we look at verse 5, his testimonies are trustworthy and holiness befits your house it's a reminder that we have a great word that we can trust and that's christ was born christ died and christ was raised and cried again right that's the better testimony that we have he previously poured out his wrath small amount on the earth in the time of noah 
but he poured out the fullness of his wrath on his son, condemned him to die, raised him to a new life so we could have a better promise. So here's the question. How do we see that promise today? Is that something we nod along to because we're in a church service? Is that something we nod along to and agree with because I'm a pastor, because Justin's a pastor, Jared's a pastor? Do we do that because we're just supposed to nod along and agree with it, or do we recognize the risen Christ and reigning Christ being the better promise from a place of assurance, from a place of motivation, from from a place of mission and sending and, and commissioning our lives into what we do every day. Testimonies are trustworthy that we can trust. Like verse 5, his testimonies are trustworthy because of an empty grave. Testimonies can be trustworthy because of your transformation. Your testimonies can be trustworthy because you have a testimony. You can testify. I once was this, and now I'm this. And then look what it says at the conclusion of this psalm. Holiness befits your house forevermore. Um, I grew up in, in... good old Southern Baptist church life where they had committees about everything. I don't know if you grew up in churches like that or not. They would have different committees that would like, some would decorate the church for Christmas, and different committee would decorate, or they would always compete for budget, you know, like who got to do more, photo ops and all this stuff. Um, I feel like they've probably used verse 5 as a reason to spend a lot of money on, you know, decorating the church come Christmas or Easter time. Holiness before house. Problem is, I think there's a big theological miss there on what the house of God is. Now, when the psalm was written, the house of God was probably recognized to be a temple, um, most specifically in Jerusalem, but even altars or temples in other places, synagogues that, that Jewish men and women had set up. But when we read this psalm, we know that the house of God is not a building built by man. It's not bricks and mortar. In fact, Stephen, the martyr in the New Testament, in Acts, gave his to this message. He said, that the house of God is no longer a building. It's no longer a holy of holies. It's no longer a place. The house of God is a people. It's us. And what this psalm reminds us as we conclude is that if you're a believer in Jesus, holiness looks good on you. It looks good on you. It looks good on you to pursue it. It looks good on you to submit your life to it. It looks good on you to, to chase holiness. But we don't get to holiness by nodding along, do we? We don't get to hold, no one's counting attendance at church, holiness. No one's counting offering giving, holiness. No one's counting, um, you know, the way that we love our neighbor is holiness. Do you know what counts as holiness for you? Do you know what counts? It's the exchange of your unrighteousness for the righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's that he made him who knew, to, who knew no sin to become sin so that in him you might become the absolute pure and blameless righteousness of God. So how do we know that holiness looks good on us? It's when we submit and surrender our lives in the lordship of the risen and reigning lamb of God, Jesus. And we say because that cross is empty, because there's nobody on it, and because there's nobody in that tomb, and because there is a king on a throne that I can surrender my life to and submit my life under his, and under his leadership, I get to walk robed in the same kind of holiness that our Father God is robed in, not because I've earned it, not because I deserve it, because he freely gives it to us. And when it comes to where the Spirit of God dwells, which you also find in Colossians 18, 19, 20, when it comes to where the Spirit of God dwells, which is in us, holiness looks really good on us. So how do we walk in holiness? We lean into a true and trustworthy testimony that we have a risen and reigning Savior. We do that in the midst of our suffering. We do that in the midst of of our things that are worth lamenting. We do that in the midst of of the thunderous waters rising around us. And we do that ultimately to get back to the starting point, 
where we can say with confidence, not in mocking, not with cynicism, not with sarcasm, and not with rote rehearsal. We can say with confidence, the Lord reigns. He's put on his strong, big boy pants today, me, and I'm confident that he's done it because there's a grave that's empty and there's a throne that's occupied. Amen? Amen. Amen. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. He has put strength on in his belt. His world is established and shall not be moved. His throne from the days of old. He is from everlasting. The floods have lifted up. They have lifted up their voice. They have lifted up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters or the waves of the sea is the lie in mighty majesty. His decrees and his testimonies are trustworthy. And holiness looks good on his house.